Hello there and welcome to Wrong Ways Columbia Cast with me, Brendan Wrongway Corrigan. Now, if you can suspend your disbelief for a moment and imagine a world without coronavirus, in such a scenario, there would be giddy excitement here in Colombia as we geared up to co-host Copa America 2020. In fact, it will be getting underway in just over a week's time as we record this. Alas, like pretty much all sporting events, it's not taking place. We do have it to look forward to next year, at least. On the flip side for football fans, the game has made a tentative return in Europe, minus supporters albeit, yet it still seems some way off from returning to this side of the world. Needless to say, as it is in so many sectors, it's a challenging, worrying time for many clubs here. Joining us to chat about this lack of football scene here and what we can expect when it returns is Bogota-based football writer Carl Warswick. Carl, before we get into all of that, you had a beautifully written article in The Guardian recently detailing the curious case of World Cup winning England captain Bobby Moore and the missing bracelet from a swanky Bogota hotel. Uh, For those who don't know the story, can you fill us in as to what exactly happened? Hello. Um, yeah, so it was 1970 for the first time, for the only time in England's history, they were world champions. And this was the World Cup in Mexico. So England uh, flew over to Mexico and they had a, a couple of weeks doing some preparation there. And they decided to come to, to Bogota. Two reasons, really. One, because of they wanted to do some altitude training. Mexico um, was a lot higher than that most players we're used to, and also because Colombia were interested in hosting the 1986 World Cup, so to get the uh, powerful English FA's bid on uh, support on side was was considered uh, the way to go. So they came, they came to Bogota, and uh, they'd only been in the country about three hours, and they're in the Hotel Tech in Dharma, which um, was the emblematic hotel of its time. Uh, it's fallen on harder times the, the, the in more recent years, but uh, back then it was uh, the place to be. And um, Bobby Charlton, um, the England midfielder, wandered into one of the shops that was in uh, based inside the hotel to look for a ring for his wife. And Bobby Moore, the England captain, accompanied him. And he came out and a few minutes later, the shop assistants come running, came running out and accusing him of uh, robbing a bracelet. And, uh, well, none of the players understood Spanish and the police came over and had to make a statement. And it was thought that that was the end of the case. Um, but England, so England played Colombia in El Campino, won 4 0. And then they had a second friendly in Ecuador a few days later. Uh, so they, they flew out to, to Ecuador, played Ecuador, beat them 2-0. And it was a week before the World Cup, and they were about to uh, fly to Mexico, the final um, stage of their preparations, but they had a stopover in Bogota. Now, they did consider cha- <laughs> changing their flight because they were still slightly worried that this case had been reopened and Bobby Moore had been called in for more questioning, but they thought that would have been suspicious. So they they did make the stopover in in Bogota. And um, as they had landed, um, the British embassy did a deal with the police to prevent them um, marching straight on the the airplane and arresting Bobby Moore, which would have been ridiculously embarrassing for everybody involved. But he was, um, the, the deal was, 
was that he would go down to, to the police station and answer some more questions while his teammates watched an old black and white film back at the Hotel Tech in Dharma. But uh, as it turned out, he ended up being um, detained. Um, and the judge originally was going to put him in the, the DAS, the secret, pl- uh, the, what is it, the, is it the secret police? I can't. Yeah, I think, yeah, secret police, I think. Or, in, yeah. in the jail, in, 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 the, in the headquarters, um, down in the centre, but the, the Football Federation president did a deal and sort of saved him. Um, and he was one of the first ever cases of um, Casa Por Carcel, the house arrest, um, while they tried to to sort this mess out. And as you can imagine, it was it was massive. It was on the front page of almost every newspaper in the world. Harold Wilson, who was the Labour Prime Minister at the time, um, was using all his um, yeah, political influences to, to try and um, get the Colombian president involved in to, to get him off. Um, because, it's, it's yeah, it would be like Lionel Messi a week before the World Cup uh, being being arrested and accused of, um, yeah, stealing a, a bracelet. And in the end, uh, we we don't we still don't know. It's the 50th anniversary this year. And we still re- don't know the full story of what, what happened. And I guess that uh, um, keeps it alive, keeps it quite interesting. Yeah, because you've you've done a lot of digging in this. Because um, you were telling me earlier that uh, you helped the, the guy who wrote was it um, Bobby Moore's um, biography. So you you have a lot of the background information. What, where are your own thoughts on it? What, what do you think? Um, well, it's Matt Dickinson who wrote the the biography. He's the yeah the football editor of the Times, the Money Full. He did even more work than I did. I mainly concentrated on the Colombian side of things, but he spoke to all the old players and his wife, his ex-wife. Um, yeah, he, he did an exhausting job in, in tracking everyone down and asking them. And it seems incredible that somebody so rich, somebody so um, famous, and he was one of the first footballers to make that step from being just a an athlete to being part of the um, the showbiz scene. Um, so he had no need whatsoever to do this. Um, what, I mean, why would he have done it? And within two hours of, of landing in a, a country he'd never been to before and probably knew very little about. Um, and, yeah, it, but there is a, a, an interesting factor in all this because a month before that had happened, Colombia had gone to the polls, and uh, there have been quite a few dirty elections in Colombia's history, but this is considered the worst of all, where, um, I can't remember his name now, uh, Rojas Benilla, who was a, uh, okay. yeah, he, he was up running on a, a quite pro- progressive ticket, and everybody expected him to, to be winning on the night that they were going to announce the election results, and all communication was severed, and the country woke up the, the next day, and um, he lost, and it was the Conservative Party guy who'd uh, been been elected. So it, it's in this context that Bobby Moore arrived in the centre of Bogota. And um, do I think he's guilty? No, I, I don't, um, even though I've never met the guy, because he died in 1993. But there is enough doubts to suggest that something did happen, um, that there's something we haven't been told, something we haven't found out from it all, a lot of this comes from um, Jeff Powell, who is a Daily Mail journalist, who comes from the east end of London, 
and same as Bobby Moore. And apparently when, and they were really good friends. Um, and apparently before he died, he told Bobby Moore um, that something had happened, that it might have been a prank, that some what one of the younger players might have done something stupid. And if you can imagine, there wasn't the media glare like there is today. It wasn't so state. There wasn't um, a person specially designated in the squad to look after the media and to protect the players. It wasn't like that. So pranks were a common feature of these trips abroad. And a lot of them were in their early 20s. And, yeah, and they all played in England. They, they weren't, there wasn't really much uh, European football. So this was yeah, a bit like a lad's holiday, really. Um, and, but out of respect for Bobby and this sort of mythical East End cold, um, he said that it, that's the secret would remain with Bobby Moore. It would go to the grave with him. And there have been other moments that, yeah, maybe this... Um, he he took the the flak. He took, he covered for one of the um, one of the younger players. So, but we'll never. I doubt we'll ever find out because I spent about two years trying to find the government file. And uh, yeah, as you can imagine, I got sent from one notary office to the other to the fiscalier down to um, the warehouses in the south of the city, and I, and I couldn't find it. Another thing that you mentioned in the, in the the recent Guardian article is that uh, he might have been Bobby Moore and the team kind of victims of of a bit of a swindle. A few crafty Colombians. I might get into trouble for saying that, but that also might seem more of a possibility that uh, these employees who perhaps weren't making that much money in their work thought, oh, we've got an opportunity here to kind of plant something on these famous footballers. Uh, that that seems oh, yeah, that, another likely Yeah, that's scenario. the most plausible thing. That's the most yeah, the most likely explanation of it. And actually Pele had come to Colombia nineteen sixty eight, a couple of years beforehand, and something similar had happened to him. And uh, certainly the the owner of the the shop um yeah uh, he he paid off a local street seller to for him to come forward as a second witness. Um, and so, yes, yeah, something didn't really add up there. And okay. yeah, there, there, there certainly is an, an element of truth in that. Um, but it backfired massively because his shop was closed down. The Hotel Tekken Dam, as I said, was the probably the, the most famous hotel in the, in the entire country. Um, kicked them out. Um, the girl had to, probably had to change her name and, uh, and leave the country. And, uh, and yeah, the, the lawyer for the, the shop who refused to speak to me 50 years on was quite um, yeah, upset at me calling him. He has a, a, a very interesting um, career after that because he, he becomes the lawyer for the Grupo Santo Domingo, one of the biggest companies in, in, in Colombia. But he's also an M19 um, military activist. And he actually stood for them when they put down their arms. So... He, he somehow balances these two two careers, um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I think um, he, there is. It's not that black and white that it was just a, a, a stitch up, um, but th- there is an element of that. I do find it crazy that that uh, the lawyer didn't want to speak about it, and, and was actually quite upset that you contacted him because he's about the only kind of direct surviving member, is he now? At Absolutely, in, in Colombia. Yeah, nearly everyone has yeah. died, and there aren't that many um, England players left either. So, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't believe that at 50 years on, he 
yeah, told me never to call him again and hung up. <laughs> but oh, it still hurts, still smart. Yeah, you you won't be meeting him up for a, for for a coffee anyway in the next couple no. of weeks. Uh, no. well, it, weirdly, the guy who gave me the contact for him taught, uh, advised me right. What you need to do, you need to go to this coffee shop, and he told me where it was, and asked for. But, but that's not his real name. And I'm thinking, what is the mystery? <laughs> Fifty years on, just to, to to meet this guy. Why why is there still so much? Yeah, is this shrouded in mystery? But yeah, we'll never know. Yeah. We'll never know. I mean, it wasn't the most expensive of bracelets either, was it? Well, I think for the time it was. Okay. Um, yeah, I think it was a twenty-five thousand, uh, twenty-five thousand pesos. Um, but then the shop owner, I, I don't. This is a, a part of legalese I, I'm not too familiar with. But when he pressed charges, he he upped that to about two hundred and five, two hundred and ten thousand pesos because. Um, damages to his moral character or something like that. So I think it would have been a sizable fee, especially for here in Colombia. I mean, Bobby Moore, as um, Sir Alf Ramsey, the England manager, um, quipped, um, Bobby Moore could afford to have buy, bought the whole, whole hotel. So, uh, yeah, why would he have stolen the payslip? But still, for Colombia terms, I think it would have been seen as... I, I, I wouldn't like to put a figure on it, but we're talking probably tens of millions of pesos. Okay, okay. But one thing as well that comes across in, in the article um, that you wrote, uh, Bobby Moore seems like a, a real gentleman that, in terms of his conduct in all of this. And then he went to, went on to Mexico and performed gallantly for, for the England team as well at, at uh, the World Cup in Mexico. So he, he comes across, I mean, a guy who I don't know much about, I have to say, but uh, he comes across as a, as a real kind of hero almost in this. Uh, yes, perhaps. Maybe that was the, my English <laughs> uh, tribute to to the, our only World Cup winning captain. But he he just recovered from well a few years after he'd um, he'd had cancer. Um, but he was a massive, massive boozer as well. And in I don't know if he made the final cut, but in in the article when he was under house house arrest, he drained the entire football federation president's house of booze. And then was up at six o'clock the next morning to to go for a jog while the, his his armed guards who were meant to be watching over him um, continued to to nurse their hangovers and sleep in. Um, but no, he had this incredible inner strength to not let it affect him. He he always thought he'd he'd get through it somehow. Um, he must have been deep down worried um, because when he was released, it was four days before England's first game, and he hadn't been training. And the psychological effects must have been massive too. But um, yeah, from from all records, from all conversations, from from that time, he everybody said that he he just shrugged it off as if nothing had happened. And then he put in one of the greatest ever um, performances in a World Cup. And there's a beautiful photo of uh, Pele hugging Bobby Moore. And it was because Pele had later said that he was that was the uh, strongest rival. He'd ever had to face, and so the story goes. Pelly had told Bobby Moore after that group game, which Brazil won, won one nil. We'll see you in the final because Brazil considered England to be their greatest rival. Right. Well, how did they get on in the end? Um, well, they got knocked out in the next round in the quarterfinals. Uh, they were two 0 up against West Germany, and there were some questionable tactical uh, substitutes. 
And uh, in extra time, West Germany went on to win 3-2. The kind of common tragedy for English football since 1966. No, and the common enemy as well. West Germany or yeah, Germany. West Germany, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You did, well, you didn't get knocked out in penalties though, no? In extra time. No, not this time. No. <laughs> Typical. But yeah, fascinating story. I'll put a link uh, on the text accompanying this uh, podcast uh, to that article of people interested to to read the piece, as I said, beautifully written. Uh, but we'll, we'll take it up to, to today now, an actual uh, football and the football that's not happening here in Colombia. As I mentioned in the intro, of course, we should have been gearing up for the Copa America and uh, Bogota having big international football matches, which it doesn't uh, tend to get. What, it would have been, Bogota, would have been Colombia-Ecuador next week? Was that was going to kick off the tournament? Here? Is that the first game? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's in Bogota, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that would have been great. But um, what is the story? Uh, you obviously have your ear to the ground on the local scene here, the club scene. When can we expect uh, domestic football to return? Nobody knows. Um, there are two huge fights going on within Colombian football. One of them between um, the league, which is the major um, private entity, that is controlled by the 36 clubs um, and the government, strangely enough, um, but particularly with the Ministry of Defence. So Columbia created a, a new Ministry of Sport, uh, sorry, Ministry of Defence, a Ministry of Sport. Um, they created a new Ministry of Sport um, last year, I think it was, and the minister, who's a former um, athlete, seems to be doing a pretty good job. He's... Um, yeah, come out of this smelling quite nicely okay. <laughs> uh, compared to most uh, politicians. And he's put his foot down and said, and has um, been very clear in saying, you're not having football back until we can be sure that this is under control. And right now it's not under control. And so um, there's been a hell of a lot of pressure put on him. And the league then uh, dragged in Alvaro Uribe, the ex-president, um, which ruffled quite a few feathers because this was seen as going ab- ab- above um, the Ministry of, of Sport. And um, he then tried to use his contacts in, in government to put some pressure on because the league is desperate to get back up and running. The, and, and the background is, is quite interesting because at the end of last year, the, the league decided we're going to have a premium uh, TV channel where, uh, for all the Colombian league games. And so... We're going to shift um, five of the ten games a week onto this channel, and you've got to pay thirty thousand um, pesos, ten dollars, which is more than um, you'd be paying more to watch Equidad Jaguares than you would for a month subscription to Netflix with its like, entire back catalogue of films and documentaries and all that. So, and there was a, a debate um, in Congress, and one of the congressmen. Um, tried to put a bill forward to protect football because this meant removing the two games a week that was on um, public TV um, and leaving vast, um, I'd say 98% of the country without access to watch a football game. Um, and he tried to argue that it was part of like Colombia's uh, cultural um, identity and so that this should be protected and should be go- out going out on, on Colombian TV, and it was rejected by Di Major. And Di Major said that um, if you want to show um, games on, on TV, then show me the money. 
Now, this is, <laughs> it came across as very arrogant back then, but as soon as this crisis kicked off in April, um, Di Maggiore had to uh, come crawling back to the government and asking for a bit of money to, to, to help them and resources and credits and all that. So they, they've been really, really trying to uh, put some pressure on the government to, put, uh, to get this, to get the league back up and, and running. But um, and only this week it's changing all the time. But only this week the government have said that if everything goes well, you can return to individual training um, from June. But even that now is looking increasingly unlikely until the end of the month. Then group training in July, and then we want the league to be restarting in August. Now the league are trying to squeeze that. Um, they're trying to drag that um, forward as much as possible. But within Di Major, within the 36 clubs, there's a big, big fight going on between the, the, the powerful clubs who are outnumbered on every single vote and the smaller clubs. And this gets all messy, um, but this is um, what, what's going on behind the scenes in, in this struggle between seven or eight clubs um, who want a bigger slice of the pie and the smaller clubs that uh, are leading a, uh, they're trying to get rid of the the, the, the football, uh, the Di Major president and trying to um, maintain the present order where every single time there's a vote, they can just outnumber the big teams. Um, the big teams are saying, well, we're, we're being held back because Nacional currently earned the same amount of money from TV rights than um, Kindil, who have been in the second division for about five years. And so it's yeah, it, it, it doesn't seem fair, but uh, yeah, there's, it's all sort of yeah, quite complicated. I mean, it's like anything in this country; it's never straightforward, is it? And that's where we get talking about who's going to foot the cost of all the the changes that they're going to have to make in the stadiums. Who's going to pay for for the testing? Because um, they're talking about doing 900 tests every single game on, on, on all the players and, and their families. And Di Major is saying, oh, well, there are two types of tests. There are the quick ones and then the, the molecular ones. And Di Major are trying to do things on the cheap, of course, whereas the Ministry of uh, Health are trying to get them to do all tests to be the molecular ones. And if they do demand that, um, Di Major just won't be able to find that money. And it's not clear where they're going to get the money from anyway. Um, and one of the ideas, they're floating a few ideas about, OK, when we do get the league up and running, how are we going to cram in as many games as possible? And they're talking about um, sending all the teams to the coffee region. And so playing all games in Pereira, Armenia and Manizales and getting all the players um, to stop at hostels and, uh, can you imagine, <laughs> and thinkers. And, um, yeah, I mean, they're still, in, they're still trying to work that out. But um, there's, on one hand, you've got the majority trying to um, cram in as many games as possible uh, and do everything as, on the cheap. And then you've got the Ministry of um, Sport, who almost single-handedly is putting the brakes on this project. Will we see the league though return as it was before this crisis, or do you think there'll be a few teams that might just have to uh, throw in the towel, sort of put it, uh, and, and go out of business? Uh, like I'm guessing, outside of the big clubs, like you mentioned, Nacional, the two big clubs here in Bogota, Santa Fe and Millonarios. I'm guessing Cali, uh, America, the Cali as well, juniors. But uh, outside of those, other clubs, I'd say, are just probably scraping in existence in normal times. Well, I, th I think the big, it's 
the bigger clubs are the ones that are going to struggle the most because there's no chance this year that um, fans are going to be allowed back into the stadium. And because the TV deal is so bad for the big clubs, they rely on filling their stadiums for the vast majority of their money. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's this international TV deal that the president did um, with a company that wasn't even active. Um, and that money should have been delivered last year. It still hasn't been delivered, and it's $60 million over a period of 10 years, and, yeah, nobody knows where it is or how they're going to get it. So the big clubs are really, really struggling because they're paying big, big wages. Now, some of the big clubs, like Junior, are owned by uh, the Char family, and Nacional have the uh, the, uh, Lule um, empire behind them. But um, the smaller clubs, I mean, half of them are playing, paying their players, especially in the second division, the minimum wage. A lot of them, as a tax fiddle, fiddle pay their players. Their contract says they, they're earning the minimum wage, and they get a lot of the money, uh, the players earn a lot of the money from bonuses. But So they're not really going to be hit that much by this. They're still getting um, the TV money, um, and they're not having to pay too much into wages. But already, America, who are the current champions, have told their manager, yeah, see you later, we're not paying you anymore. They've released a few of their players. Um, their, their captain, he's, he's, he said, yeah, my, cap, my, my contract was ripped up a couple of months ago. I'm not sure if I'm going to be playing anymore. So I think it's the bigger clubs that are going to struggle the most. I've not heard that any club is going to go out of business yet, but... I guess it's still a bit early to say because if the major do get their way and they do manage to um, somehow get this money from the international TV rights um, and they do manage to cram as many games as possible in um, this year, then we might see that uh, clubs will take a hit, but they they might survive. I was, I was going to make the observation that uh, playing football behind closed doors, it's a bit eerie. But uh, in fairness, a lot of the, the lesser known clubs in Colombia, anyway, when they play, it's, it's practically like they're playing behind closed doors. Uh, it's only the big clubs that get the, the, the supporters, it seems. But uh, you're, <laughs> you're not a fan of that anyway, though. Well, as, a, as somebody who watches plenty of um, Colombian second division games live, uh, I'm used to seeing um, crowds of yeah fewer than... 60 people so uh, it wouldn't make that much of a difference yeah probably more dogs in the stadium than there are people half the time you you, you do joke but that did once happen to me there were, there were about 12 straight dogs in uh, a barranquilla against real santander game and about 2016 then there were fans so <laughs> yeah this had happened plenty of mascots going going around there anyway but yeah, this whole idea of, of football behind closed doors, and we've seen it with the Bundesliga in Germany. I mean, it, it is eerie when you're used to seeing, um, obviously, uh, stadiums packed out with fans. So that's going to take some getting used to. Um, here in Colombia, not so much, because over the years, um, crowd violence has, has been a, a recurrent problem, and uh, clubs are constantly um, facing um, fines and bans and I once saw Nacional win the league t- title here against Santa Fe in El Campín and there, there were no, no fans in the stadium uh, their fans weren't allowed in the stadium so the Santa Fe fans all all left and um, the uh, assembled a, a, a stage and the Nacional fans um, were on the stage lifting the trophy and there, was, there were only a few journalists in the entire stadium we could hear what they were she- screaming and shouting so I, I, I think in Colombia it's not too um, surprising. To, it wouldn't be too surprising to see that. Certainly, in Europe, when you're having 
Borussia Dortmund getting averaging 90,000 fans a, a game to see the just cardboard cutouts these days, or well, <laughs> sex dolls in uh, South Korea. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, it is a big change, but here in Colombia, it's it's not too too big of a change. And then any word on the on the continental uh, tournaments, the Copa Libertadores? Um, I guess that's going to be the, the last thing to return, really. It is, yeah. Um, and the World Cup qualifiers. Um, of course. Yeah. I, I bought all my tickets, my flights for that. So, yeah, I, I, it's looking increasingly likely that they're going to... So they were meant to be playing the, the first game in March. Then there were FIFA dates in September, October, November. It's looking increasingly un- unlikely that they're going to be able to play any of those games because even if Colombia get their house in order and when you've got Brazil on your doorstep and... Uh, uh, that, that's a, that's worth millions to each federation. Each game is worth millions, so it's it's a massive loss. And you can, I, I expect them to do everything humanly possible to make those games go ahead. But I just can't see how how, how they can do. Not not in the present situation, anyway. It might be different in a month's time. But uh, and the couple of them said always Copa Sudamericana, uh, the same. Um, how, how can you have? Uh, we don't. Well, we don't re- even have um, international flights until the end of August. Is that right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, how, how can you have teams from Brazil and Argentina flying in to play when there aren't any international flights? I guess you, the other thing is, of course, some people might think, "Well, look, football. You know, it's not a matter of life or death. Or who, who was it that said it's more important than that?" But there are people who kind of go, "It's not the priority right now." But of course, it is very important here for society, as you mentioned. And I, I also have like there are real lives affected in this. Uh, a guy who I had on the podcast, Des Macalinen, uh, who's the goalkeeping coach with uh, La Selección de Colombia. Uh, he's back in Ireland now, uh, uncertain as to when they're going to return to, to training. And, and even you were telling me yourself now that uh, you're you're laid off for the moment too. Yeah, well, I mean, a topic we haven't d- discussed is women's football and the women's championship, which has been hit harder than the men's game and might never... well. It will one day, but not for a long time, uh, and will recover because they were meant to, uh, as part of Conmebol, which is the South American Football Federation, sort of the equivalent of UEFA, um, as part of their rules to compete in the Copa Libertadores, you have to have a, an active women's team. Um, and so Di Major were forced into uh, starting the first Women's Championship a couple of years ago, and this is also part of the their plan to host the 2023 World Cup, um, Women's World Cup. But it was done completely on the cheap, and only three clubs offered their players contracts, and uh, the rest of them were were training but weren't earning any money, and we were waiting. Um, news of how the league would work. Would it be three months like last year? Would it be longer? What format was it going to be? And now they've been left in, in limbo and the Players Association have had to be, have been delivering food to um, because they're starving. They don't have any money. Um, they've been waiting for this league to start and then with this, um, this, this, this huge problem, then they've just been left in limbo. Um, and the, so the women's game, more than any are going to be is going to be affected massively. Yeah, of course, and 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 always it's almost always uh, an afterthought as well uh, compared to the men's game. So not not even an afterthought. They see it as a drain on resources. They don't want to do it because if you look at the people who are in charge of uh, football in Colombia, all of them, well, 
I'd say 99. I've not come across a, a you know my 10 years here dealing with Dima Joy. I've never seen uh, a woman um, in a position of management within Dima Joy. The 36 club presidents, they're all white men. They're all from the same group of friends. They just see it as a drain on resource. They don't see it as something to, to invest in. They don't see it as a source of pride. They just see it as an annoyance. And so it's not even an afterthought. It's something that they w- would love to get rid of, but they're forced into ha- having to deal with. Okay, In- interesting. And had it had it or has it been growing the, the women's game here uh, on the ground? Um. Well, the the first ever championship. There were thirty three thousand fans um, that saw the final. Um, I think it was Santa Fe against Wheeling in El Campín. 33,000 fans, which at the time was one of uh, the biggest crowds ever seen for a women's game. Um, there are a few factors for that, but and Santa Fe did, were one of the, the few teams that seriously invested in a, a proper project and went out and tried to encourage fans to, um, to, to, to get involved and support their team. They, they also had the lovely... Um, marketing strategy of Santa Fe were the first ever champions of the men's game and so they wanted um, to be the first ever champions of the women's game uh, something they, they managed to achieve um, so there, there was interest um, I don't know how, outside the big cities whether there would be massive interest but Columbia, when Colombian women uh, the national team play there, there's always people watching on TV and you co- in, even in corner shops you see that I don't, I don't other than the World Cup I've never seen that in England. Um, and this has sort of emerged from nothing. There's not been any um, building up of the, of the game over the years. Um, so there is interest, but it's, it's just never give, given the resources or the support um, that it needs. It's interesting you mentioned that about what, um, people watching uh, the women's game here, because the way I see it, uh, you know, I, I'd be into my rugby and things like that and other sports. But here, it, it, football is the religion, obviously. And... It, regardless of kind of the level or, or who's playing it a lot of the time, they'll watch any game, it seems. Yeah, and um, they, they did something with the women's game when they first introduced the league that, I'm not really sure what I think about this, but what they would do is play the women's game before the men's game. Now, is that reducing the, the women's game down to a sort of sideshow, the opening act? Uh, it's not being allowed to live on its own merits. Or is it allowing fans to dip the toe in the water and say, you know, we'll turn up, instead of going to the, the empanada, we'll, we'll go to the stadium an hour early and we'll check out the, the second half of the, of the game. Certainly that's what, what seemed to happen. I did uh, something with the BBC on that, in that season and I went down for the women's game and there were 3,000 fans in El Campín. Um, mm-hmm. And quite a few of them were just wandering and, and the standard wasn't great, but what do you expect? It's the first ever league. If I, if we were to look back on the first ever men's league in 1948, I think we'd conclude something similar, that this isn't brilliant to watch when you're used to watching uh, European football, especially in this globalised world, but it's something that you've got to invest in and give patience to. And, uh, yeah, I, I think there is an appetite for it, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's got to be nurtured. And uh, as, as with everything in Colombia, everything's so sh- short-sighted from those at the top. Um, they just want to see the, the quick book be made. And um, fo- women's football doesn't make any money. And that's the biggest problem for the, the, the federation, as well as 
quite a few people, I'm not mentioning names, within the, uh, within Dimajor holding very uh, displeasurable views on, on, on women's rights and things like that. Interesting. Yeah, um, a lot mixed in in that as well. Politics, sexism, perhaps, and all that kind of stuff in it. But maybe this I mean, is a time for reflection. I yeah, I, I don't even need to avoid mentioning names because the under-17s physio is currently engaged in a legal battle with the under-17s national team coach, and she's accused him of sexually abusing her, um, of touching her a bottom of making inappropriate comments or sending her messages and this is going through the courts right now so and this is one case. can you imagine what this is like down at a regional level there must be so many of these cases this is at a, a national team level so um and there have been accusations that the women have have, have been fantastic in organizing and coming together and supporting each other through the players association i call football in in denouncing the, these things and how the one of the footballers was in the United States and uh, she got a phone call saying, oh, we're playing a, a friendly. She had to pay for all her, her travel costs and they had to take a bus from Cucuta into Venezuela to pay this friendly. Can you imagine Ames and Falcao getting on a, on a, on a, on a bus and just, yeah, going in, into Venezuela without any cost covered at all? It, it just wouldn't happen. So... It's, it's a horrible, a horrible situation that they're, they're facing, but uh, an important fight that they're, they're engaged in. Yeah, well, hopefully, I guess talking about it, and as I said, this might be a time for a bit of reflection, although uh, I wouldn't uh, hold my breath that uh, the powers that be are going to make any quick changes. As you said, they're, they're more, more than likely just thinking about a quick book and, and where the money can be made today, but not thinking... Uh, long term down the line by the way um carl just in these uh, football less days uh, how are you surviving for a guy who practically eats uh, drinks uh, and sleeps football uh, how are you getting through these, these lockdown times i'm all right actually yeah um i mean the first few weeks i was quite relieved because I, I, I used to have to watch every single game in the Colombian top flight and I used to watch some of the second division stuff as well and watch about 60 live games a season so it's quite a relief uh, now I'm getting a bit fidgety football manager the computer game has been uh, keeping me occupied but uh, it's, it's not been too okay. bad but you'd be I guess you'd be looking forward to well first of all the Premier League will be uh, coming back and hopefully it should be anyway in the, in the next few weeks Who who do you support by the way? Well, yeah, I'm not looking forward to that because I'm an Aston Villa fan and uh, All right. <laughs> I'm not confident whatsoever <laughs> that we're going to stay up. So um, lose that first game and I wish football would never come back. Well, you can live in hope. I can understand that uh, from, from an Irish perspective. I'm from Roscommon and our football team, well, the perennial uh, underachievers, put it that way to say the least in any case. Uh, Carl, but anyway, an absolute pleasure. Thanks for that. We covered a, a lot of bases uh, there and uh, a pleasure to have you on board. That's Carl Warsick, a football writer based here in Bogota. If you want to check out that article on Bobby Moore, I will um, post the link with the text accompanying this podcast. But that is our lot uh, on Wrongways Columbia Cast. If you want to get in touch with me, you can via uh, my Twitter handle. That's WWayCorrigan find me on facebook uh, wrong way corrigan blog and carl you're you're on twitter yes if people want to check out your your writing and stuff uh yeah let me think 
What is it? <laughs> I'm going to have to check my... It's C. Warswick. Yes, W-O-R-S-W-I-C-K. Wonderful stuff. Okay, until the next time, ciao, ciao.